I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and London. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, Ghana Women Power. March is Ghana's 60th anniversary of independence. Ghana is celebrating throughout the year. Here on The Spin, we will explore and discuss the state of Ghanaian women's nation. In part one, personal journeys. What has the rhetoric of freedom and independence meant for Ghanaian women? And in part two, what does it mean to reimagine Ghanaian women as full citizens, not spectators, not side chicks, nor as somebody's auntie? All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are two Ghanaian women of two different generations, Dr. Bettina Ama Buheni Anda and Nana Akosia Hansen. Dr. Anda is a family practitioner and a clinical nutritionist. She is the medical director of Braithwaite Consult Limited. In 2004, she became the first woman physician to a Ghanaian president, John Ajimankofo. Dr. Ander is author of the book, The President's Physician. She is the founder of MenFed Foundation, a non-profit youth-oriented organization, and the creator of the Story of Our Lives conference, in which women share experiences and lessons about their lives with the younger generation. Nana Akosia Hansen is a broadcaster, writer, poet, activist, and actress. She writes for Pan-African website thisisafrica.me and curates a personal blog at darkmosaic.blogspot.com. She runs Let's Talk Consent, sexual consent workshops in high schools and universities in Accra, teaching the rules of consent, debunking misconceptions about sex and the effects of popular culture on gender roles and sexual relations. These workshops are part of her work to end rape culture in Ghanaian society. As an actress, Nana Akosia has performed at the Efwa Sutherland Drama Studio and Ghana's National Theatre. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello, Esther. Good to be on the show. 2016 is the 60th year of independence of Ghana. President Nana Akufuado gave a speech in which he spoke of the state of the nation. Yeah. This is my state of the nation address It's no hating, I'm just stating the facts Updating the masses on the situation that we face And I guess we can accept it's complicated at best Indeed. During the speech, President Akufuado reminded the millions watching live and online That independence meant freedom to choose He paid tribute to the women who financially backed a movement Gave birth to Ghana's flag And reminded Ghanaians to recommit to this word, citizens Listen Being independent means you have the freedom and ability to make informed decisions in life without having to seek permission of, of other people, help or money, and you take full responsibility for seeing things through. On March 6, 1957, we lowered the British flag and jettisoned the name of Gold Coast that had been given to us and took on the name of Ghana, the name of our ancestral home. The name Ghana was meant to give us a fresh start, 
and mark the break from colonialism. And it was also meant to serve as a link to our historical roots and the assurance that we have a history, culture, and civilization that preceded colonialism. I pay homage to a queer Sabia political activist, and I pay homage to Evelyn Amatefio, social welfare pioneer. I pay homage to Esther Oklu, pioneer industrialist and entrepreneur, whose food processing enterprises under the Unkulemu label changed our habits of food preparation forever. I pay homage to Dede Eshikisha Menakwa Shoshosho, famous market queens who helped finance Kwame Nkrumah and the nationalist movement from their successful businesses. They and many others like them contributed to the fight for independence and in molding the Ghanaian that emerged on 6th March 1957. Let us mobilize for the happy and prosperous Ghana of tomorrow in which all of us, including our youth, our women, and the vulnerable in our society will have equal opportunities to realize our potential and build lives of dignity. Ghana's president, Nana Adodankwa Akofu-Addo. Ghana was the first nation in Africa to free itself from British colonial power. That was in 1957. Her first president, Kwame Nkrumah, was a Pan-Africanist, and Ghana, of course, is a spiritual home for a global black people, especially African-Americans. The great intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois came here and is, in fact, buried in our capital city, Accra. Artists and writers like Maya Angelou and boxer Muhammad Ali also came here. Today, Ghana continues to attract African-Americans seeking to reconnect with the continent. Due to enslavement and the bid for reconnection, African-Americans can actually now get special visas and Ghanaian passports. Cultural migrations. Sons and daughters of the diaspora claim this nation of gold and bauxite, iron and manganese, with its oceans and culture, history, beauty and people. They claim it as home. We call it home. After 60 years of independence, what kind of home, space and place is it for Ghanaian women? We are 52% of the population, but behind every number is a woman, a girl, a life, a dream, a future and a path. So let's talk Ghana, women and power, personal journeys. Dr. Ander, let me start with you. When you think about journeys, this word power and your own path, what does that mean to you? I always make sure that I'm very cautious when I talk about power because in my case, I had the opportunity to work at the highest level as a physician to a sitting head of state, the only female, first and only female to have done that so far. And so I went close to political power. So that is what I probably can talk about. But as well, I am an empowered woman, at least that's what I like to think. And my journey has been one of ups and downs, but hanging around political power makes a big difference to the way you look at things after you've exited that space. So it's, it's been quite a journey for me. So when you say ups and downs, can you give us some examples? The way we look at things culturally here in, in Ghana and by extension, I guess, Africa, women generally tend to be very much in the background. Things are changing. So it tends to be in the background. So it had never been done, where since independence, Kwame Nkrumah is our first president, and we've had 
subsequent presidents. And it's never been done where a woman has been asked to look after the health of a sitting head of state. So everybody, you know, some people thought it was odd. Some people thought it wasn't possible. Others thought I wouldn't be able to do it. So I started off from a disadvantaged position right from the beginning. So you can imagine things that normally men will do very easily, like climbing into a 4x4 vehicle through the back as low as that, and then also having to share rooms when you travel. I mean, these things sound like they're totally ridiculous, but it wasn't easy because, of course, being the only female among all those males was a little odd for me. But starting from that background, after a while, I just, uh, I always say I see myself as a capable individual, not as a capable woman. So I, I just got in there, did what I had to do, and then when the time was up, I got out. And if I mark myself, that may not be a very objective way of looking at it, but I think on the whole, I didn't do too badly. Nana Akusia Hansen, same question. When you think about this word power and where you are and your journey in life, what does that mean to you? I like to link power to empowerment and say that at least growing up my journey, luckily for me, it's not a story for a lot of women. I had parents who treated my brother and myself equally. They believed in the fact that both of us needed to have a really good education. It wasn't much of the, oh, let your brother go and play and you come to the kitchen. It was like, Dana wants to read, Akosia wants to read, yeah, just let her read. So I feel like that contributed a lot to who I am today and how I feel that naturally there shouldn't be one oppression, the oppression of this sex over the other because I didn't see that growing up and, and I understood how important that was. And I also understood how rare that was. So that was my journey to understanding what power empowerment is for me as a woman living today in Ghana. What kinds of challenges has the way in which you've interpreted power and the way in which you define it for yourself, what kinds of challenges has that created for you in the worlds of art and work in which you move? Even though my parents empowered me, it's not that everyone else thinks I should be empowered. I mean, you go into a working field where you have older men who carry the power in those spaces, who want to sleep with you who feel like they need to take sexual favors from you to be able to give you certain positions or certain privileges. I find a lot of the time in my work as a media person, when I I pass on certain views or talk about certain ways women are supposed to live, what happens is there's a whole lot of backlash, like uh, that's not how women are supposed to talk, you're supposed to be a lady, you're supposed to understand that the man is the head and not trying to fight for his space as well. And all the time there's this serious backlash because there's a fear that such a woman, you are trying to get other women to riot and take the power away from men in some sense. You know, that those are some of the challenges. What is exciting about being raised to believe that you had the power to move through and be an individual, be somebody who was empowered and in your own power? I could get what I want and I could stand up to challenges having a source form to say that this is why women should be this way. Most times when someone is raised where not in an empowered background where you're a woman and you're supposed to still be empowered, that if you're not raised that way, what happens is when you are now starting to negotiate your empowerment, there's always a lot of doubt and 
is this really what it should be? My 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 pastor says that's not how I should I should talk or how how I should live. My parents didn't say this is how I should grow up. I didn't have any of those doubts. I knew without a doubt that I'm supposed to be as equal as any man next to me. So I guess that was what was exciting. And what was extra exciting was I could pass that on and clear doubts from other women who had those doubts with my certainty. So during President Akufo-Addo's speech celebrating 60 years of independence, one of the things he said that I paid particular attention to was this. I'm quoting him now. Being independent means you have the freedom and ability to make informed decisions in life without having to seek permission from other people, help or money, and you take full responsibility for seeing things through, unquote. Now, Dr. Ander, you do a conference called The Story of Our Lives, which is actually taking place on Wednesday, the 5th of April in Accra. And during that conference, one of the things you do is the women are sharing lessons and experiences that they have, lessons that they've learned, and are passing them on to other people. So when you think about the story of your own life and the experiences that you have, that sentence, having the freedom and the ability to make informed decisions in life without having to seek permission from other people. How do you relate to that? What comes up for you when you think about that? Nanakusha said that she came from that kind of background four decades and more ago. I also found myself in that space with a mother who was very empowered. I mean, I saw her to be very self-sufficient and very, I don't know whether there's any such word, but self-entertaining. She made herself happy without waiting for anybody to come and tell her or come and direct her as to what she needs to do to keep herself happy or to take certain decisions. In some, she didn't need validation from anybody, and that included my father, because he is a pediatrician and he was working with the World Medical Council and all of that, so he's all over the place. And we still got by with that self-sufficiency. So that is the space that I grew up in. And I carried that on because my mom always said to me, luckily for me, when I was in primary school, it was such that I was always neck to neck with the boys. Because what we realized is that in the early years, what happens sometimes is that the girls are top of the class. And then later on, the boys kind of wake up. And so then you are neck to neck with them. And I don't think that has changed much. I mean, the dynamics may be different. However... I've never really relied on anybody to give me any validation. Even with this job that I did, you know, initially I was a little taken aback when I was asked to fill that position. But I saw myself as somebody who was capable of doing it. And because of my background, that certainly helped me to get through with it. And I just did my work as I thought I should. And so the story of our lives is, is, is telling the girls that, look, my favorite phrase again, see yourself as a capable individual, go in there, and if you were not capable, you wouldn't be chosen. So obviously, if you've been chosen through the right channel, then you must be capable. And therefore, don't try and be somebody else. And don't go there with an aggressive nature. Because I told them that assertiveness is good, but being aggressive, you know, rubs people the wrong way. So, yes, you may go in at a disadvantage because it is a man's world, in quotes, or so they say. So you're going in there knowing that you're at a disadvantage. But the same way I was able to rub shoulders with the boys in primary school, same in secondary school, and, and university as well. I did medicine, so obviously 
the dynamics were such that the percentages were skewed towards men in those days. Things are all boys. Things are a little different now, where they are catching up, and it's probably almost 50-50, or even in some places the girls are more than the guys. But about 20 years ago, that was not the case. And so we went neck to neck, and, and we came out well and came out unscathed. So that's what we're trying to pass on to the next generation, that we may look like we're, we've done extremely well or we're very self-sufficient and all of that, but it is a life's journey that you need to know what your focus is. And the word independence, for me, means that you should be self-sufficient and express yourself without any fear of favor. Same question to you, Nana Kusia. He defined it so well that being independent means you should have the freedom and the ability to make informed decisions in life. But then this is not me using my story and my journey. If you just look at Ghana and, and the situation of women in Ghana, it seems like independence was not for women in Ghana. Independence, Kwame Nkrumah during his time, believed in women and men being involved in the struggle for independence, included women, and he, he even, he had quote, let me quote this from him, he was like, what is the woman's part in the great struggle for the African liberation? You have to provide an answer to that question. You know, but I can say something of the role adopted by Ghanaian womanhood in the past. The women of Ghana have played a glorious part in the struggle for independence. So Kwame Nkrumah understood this, but after Kwame Nkrumah, it's been downhill since. Representation of women in parliament is always low. I think last year, um, Ghana was ranked 150 out of 185 in the inter-parliamentary union ranking on women representation in parliament. I mean, in churches, none of God still preach that women should submit to their men. And currently on social media, there's a whole lot of conversation going on about rape culture, and I'm seeing too many rape apologists. And if you have a society where there are a lot of rape apologists, you can just actually tell where they measure the worth and importance of women. It would be really, really low. You know, so it seems as though independence is one-sided. That wasn't the dream for those who fought for independence, but that's what it's become now. I think this is really powerful because when I read that sentence about the notion of independence, freedom, and not having to seek permission. I thought all of those things were antithetical to how we actually treat and deal with Ghanaian women today. And so I'm a daughter of the diaspora. I call myself a global Ghanaian. So I was born in London, then I came home to Ghana, and then I went back and forth. Both of my parents are Ghanaian, born and raised in the villages of Ghana. And so it's interesting because I think of independence as a political struggle in terms of dealing with our colonial masters. But I also think when it comes to being a woman in Ghana, there is an emotional interdependence that men and women have to learn. So in other words, we both need each other to have the fullest life possible, to have the most fulfilling life possible. And that the roles that we have assigned one another are problematic to making that real for ourselves. And so men are not independent of women. And frankly, women are not independent of men. That is not the reality on the ground in the society and in the country in which we live. We are interdependent. So in other words, we need each other. We are better with each other. But what does that mean in practice? Because when I think of the word freedom and I think of girls and women, 
I think about on the one hand, you know, Dr. Ander, you spoke about be assertive, but don't be aggressive. But I often think in our society, we turn one into the other. If the assertiveness is standing up for yourself and if standing up for yourself means going against what somebody is saying to you, particularly if that person is a man or a man in authority, then the assertion that was actually celebrated now becomes an aggression to be condemned. And so I think about that fine line between power and punishment so that the idea of having power, which every human being has, and exercising it in our society is a particular challenge. And so on the one hand, tribally, we have always had tribes that are matrilineal, that glorify and elevate power. We've always had women leadership, women chiefs. We've seen it within our society. And so that's why it's complicated because, yes, it's been in our society. And then there are ways and places in which we actively work to bring that down. I actually think when we think about women being capable I always question and challenge that because I think about having a mother and a father who taught me that intelligence mattered. And what I really want to be honest and and share is I think to myself, yes, they both taught me that intelligence mattered, but society taught me that beauty mattered more. My Sunday school pastor taught me that beauty mattered more and that actually intelligence might be a curse for young women. And so I think about growing up, I think about being 15, even 21. And that if you'd ask me, does it matter more to you to have brains or beauty? I would have always chosen beauty. And it took some time, it took growing up to learn that intelligence is always the best asset of any human being because you can always grow, you can always build, you can always expand your life. But that's not necessarily how I think we move within our culture. So that it leads me to want to ask both of you this question, that when you think about your journeys as Ghanaian women, what is the thing that makes you the most angry that you would like to change? Starting with you, Dr. Ander. I always say that we have come a long way from what it used to be before. A typical example is I have a mother who I said, yes, was empowered, but my mother would always make sure that my father's food was served he ate first. They were both very highly educated. They both were still alive. So it was the man, the man, the man. And then as well, afterwards, it's the woman and the children. Things are changing, but they're not changing fast enough. So if there's anything that I have reservations about, I, can't, I, I don't know whether that angers me, but I have reservations about it. It will be the pace of things changing and making sure that women are more respected and, in fact, they are more empowered. Another thing that worries me is our quick acceptance of mediocrity. That's the way I put it, because you hear your fellow woman saying, oh, she's done so well because, I mean, she's a woman, and if she's been able to do it, then she's done well. What are we talking about? If the person is capable and they've done well, they've done well. So we, we accept Oh, a woman shouldn't get 100%. If they got 80, she's a woman. And I'm not talking about people who are coming from our rural area. You hear these things from people who should, in my opinion, should know better. And that in itself worries me quite a bit. And then another thing that also worries me is this guilt trip that we are on a lot of the time, thinking that we need to please our partners. Because in my profession, I come across lots of people and lots of women with women's issues. And our consultation is partly 
just chatting with, with the person and then the medicine comes later. And you hear them saying, I feel so bad because I couldn't rush home and cook for my husband. And, uh, you know, the cook is not doing a good job and I'm getting frustrated. Maybe I should go back. So I keep telling them, I said, we've moved from the bedroom into the boardroom. And, and we, we need to make that fact clear. So the pace at which things, things are, you know, pace is, is a little bit slow. But we have made some inroads, and, and I think that we, we, we don't necessarily need a pat on the back, but at least we're, we're getting there, but it, the pace is, is slow. So that is one of the things that worries me. But just add quickly, the youth of today and the youthful woman, they're doing very well, because I've had the opportunity to speak to hundreds and if not thousands of girls, because I did 1,400 two years ago around the country. And, and I was just amazed at the way these young girls are able to, you know, be quite assertive and they speak up. And in our day, four decades ago, it wasn't like that. So, so I think things are moving. Slow as they are, they're still moving. And they have their ability spirit. You know, they, they, they say to themselves, we're going to do it and we can do it. And for me, that is uh, something in the right direction. Closing thought to you, um, Nana Kusia. What makes you angry when you think about the journey of Ghanaian women and specifically your personal journey? But what makes me angry since it's March and we're talking about independence, the fact that every year when we talk about the fight for independence, it's always six men or men in our history books. There are documentaries about the men who are in the forefront of the struggle and all the women who are actually part of this, making independence possible, fighting, struggling, losing their lives, funding the CPP, feeding masses of people who came to rallies. You don't find a single name of any woman in our history book. That's one thing that really makes me very angry and very worried. What are you trying to tell women, girls in school today when they're studying the history of the fight for independence? That women were not part of the story. It's, it's an erasure of whole part of humanity. Another thing that makes me angry is just the serious, heavy resistance against women's progress. I mean, you find there are lots of Ghanaian feminists now, or women who do not call themselves feminists, but still fight for women's rights. And you find that there's always serious backlash, there's always serious antagonism, there's this fear of such women that they're coming to disrupt some peace and the way things are supposed to be. And, and my point is, what we are holding on to as the way things are supposed to be are not inherently ours. We inherited at least some patriarchy from culture during colonialism. You know, I mean, even if you just go to the basics of our languages and what we call God, if you're mentioning God, you, you find, for instance, in tree, Eradi Nyankopon, they tell you Eradi is a feminine element and Nyankopon is a male element. And these two are put together. So you don't have God being he, he, he. You know, it's, it's, it's a fundamental way of getting people to understand the equality of womanhood and manhood. And so to, to hold on to what you think things are supposed to be when that's not what was your culture before that, and that's what people use against Ghanaian women fighting for women's rights today, it gets so, so worrying. Really, really worrying. Like Ghanaian singer and artist Becca says, African women, oh yeah. Every time I look in my mind, I see the woman. 
wonderful woman and African woman, mother of nature. That was part one of Ghana Women Power. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Our contributors this week are Dr. Ama Buheni Anda and Nana Akosia Hansen. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, New York, Massachusetts, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5. And we are on air in London on ABN UK Radio. We are also online. Subscribe to the Spin One podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. This is The Spin. Every week, one hour, one mic, three African women. And we go global.
Part two of Ghana Women Power, exploring 60 years of independence and the state of our nation, that of Ghana's women. Beyond the personal journeys and personal power of individual women, we now focus on a larger conversation on the issues, challenges and opportunities confronting girls and women in Ghana. We have seen Ghanaian women rise, thrive and lead in the world of technology, law, politics, journalism and entrepreneurship. Culturally, Ghana has a history of women taking action, taking charge and leading within history. Historically, we can go all the way back to Yaa Santua, an Ashanti woman who stood up to the British colonialists. In the world of technology today, there are women like Ethel Kofi, creator and visionary. The world of literature produced writers like Ama Atta Edu and so many more. And there are artists and actresses and musicians. Each of these women's individual brilliance tells part of the story of Ghana's women. Politics and policy matters too, and there have been political strides. Sambia Nkrumah, the daughter of Ghana's first president, became the first woman to chair a major political party, the Convention People's Party. Nana Kanedu Rawlings, Ghana's former first lady, became the first woman to seek the presidency. Our former minister for foreign affairs includes Hannah Tete, and our current one is Shirley Butchwe. In today's Ghana, we now have a ministry for gender, children and social protection. It was created back in 2001 and it means that Ghana's government has carved out and agreed that these three arenas require focus, budget and policy. This ministry is responsible for formulating policies that promote the institutionalization and development of issues for women and children. This is crucial political power and it is one part of a larger journey and issue. But individual brilliance is not a substitute for institutional structure. Of course, whilst there are individual politicians who've arisen, the actual number of women in parliament is low and we are 52% of the population. There are the places and spaces that are problematic, not progressive. Ghana's workforce is described as having formal and informal sectors. The informal sector is dominated by women. They are entrepreneurs, employers. They are market women, traders. They contribute massively to our economy. They do not receive the same focus as Ghana's formal sector. They don't benefit from the same policies. And in the informal sector, some are vulnerable to physical and sexual violence. One part of the role for Ministry of Gender, Children and Social Protection is to advocate for better treatment of women and girls. That part of the ministry was called into question after public comments by the current minister, Otiko Jaba. At the 90th anniversary of the speech and prize-giving day of the Krobel Girls Presbyterian Senior High School in one of Ghana's 10 regions, the Eastern Region, the minister reminded girls to be bold and confident. She then cautioned them that, quote, short skirts might be fashionable, but they might also attract rapists and defilers, unquote. In Ghana, the word used to describe sexual assault against children under the age of 16 is defilement. 
The minister's speech was televised. Her comments were reported on Star FM online. Outrage quickly spilled onto social media where there is a raging discussion regarding the comments, the ongoing perspectives being articulated on social media. Think pieces have been written and advocacy campaigns have now been launched. Now, the comments are symptomatic of the progress, power and problematic nature of gender, the attitudes of politicians and society to girls and women and this issue of sexual violence. So let's talk reimagining Ghanaian girls and women, not as aunties, side chicks, servers or short skirt wearing girls, but as full citizens of a nation. Nana Kosia Hansen, let me start with you. Your thoughts. What I heard the story, I, I definitely had to look over the audio and also read the transcript. And I mean, I thought her comments were very, very unfortunate. You could tell by her words, her, her tone, she thought she was giving good advice. And honestly, I've heard similar sentiments growing up for my parents, everyone around me, that make you feel that it's going to be your fault because you are behaving in a slutty manner or dressing in a slutty manner if anything happens to you. And, and they, they tell you this out of good intent, but it's still a very, very dangerous piece of advice to give. I say that she as minister for gender, children and social protection, she's minister for gender, not just minister for women or minister for men, for gender. She particularly shouldn't make these kind of comments that are made by common Ghanaian citizens. She, more than anyone else, should understand the power plant and the dynamics of the issues of gender. She should be the one who is at the forefront of understanding how something like this should be problematic because she's, she should know how the power dynamics switches between men and women and, and all these complex issues that come with that in gender. I mean, we are students doing their master's at the University of Ghana in gender, and she should know way more than they do. But her, her comments and head doubling down yesterday on the same comments has been really, really worrying. I run sex education workshops. And, I mean, this is the first, one of the first rules that you never, ever blame a victim or survivor of rape by what they're wearing. That's not what what question because rape is not about desire. Rape is actually about power. I, I have more power than you and I recognize that I can overcome you with my power and I overcome you. People are raped whether they're wearing short skirts or not. Babies are raped. All the women who are totally covered up, none. You know, so it's an easy out to people who actually rape or do not find any problem with raping. Dr. Amaanda, your thoughts? I've been following a lot big on social media, but because of this and the fact that I have two teenage daughters and I'm having to put them in line sometimes with how as much as I ask them to be assertive and I ask them to be fashionable and I ask them to try and fit in, yes, but they shouldn't try too hard, you know, and not everything that is fashionable is decent. This is something that my daughter, who is currently almost 17, will tell you that, you know, I say this all the time. Uh, it's unfortunate that the minister made that comment. And I always say that sometimes you look at an elephant and if they ask you which part of the elephant you saw, one will say, I saw the trunk, the other will say, I saw the ears, one will say, I saw the tail. And so what I picked from what she said, and rightly so, it's unfortunate to equate short dress and certain behavior to rape. There's no excuse for rape. And the reason that people are so up in arms is that it's a very, 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 very emotional and a very, very painful experience. And therefore, there's nothing that should excite somebody or, you know, incite somebody to 
to want to rape a young girl. So I, I totally agree from that aspect that this is an unfortunate statement. I think she's tried also to come and explain, which probably has dug her deeper into the pits that she already is in. But the aspect that I picked from what she had also said, although I look at this side of it, is that I keep telling my daughters that when you're going to wear a short dress, be prepared to bear the responsibility, not if somebody rapes you, but if somebody judges you. And it doesn't have to be male or female. We sometimes get our own females judging people who would walk into a party and wear a dress of a certain length. So whatever you're doing and whatever you're wearing, you must be very confident that I am fine with this. I know that it's, it's what I want, and I'm prepared to deal with all the you know, comments that people will pass. It is taking control of what or responsibility for what you have decided to do. Very typical example, I have extremely short hair. And I didn't stop having the short hair work. Maybe I've had short hair for at least the past 25 years. And initially, it was equated to being somebody who is sluttish, is a certain kind of woman in those days who has short hair. And it was very negative connotation. But I took absolute responsibility for it. And I said, I've kept my short hair because it is more convenient and this is how I want to keep it. So people will pass comments. And, you know, typical, putting a chain on your ankle. You know, these are little things to do with the way we project ourselves that draws a certain kind of comment. But my point is that make sure when you're doing that, you know that this is what you want, this is the space you want to be in, and, you know, that, that's the way you're going. But equating it to rape, in my opinion, is sort of an overkill. Because there is no excuse for rape. I don't care. Just had a very pathetic story a couple of days ago of a three and a half year old who was being constantly sexually abused by somebody who was very close to her. And you know, it just rings home that this is a three and a half year old. How attractive can she be? At night, she's even in, in diapers because she has problems with her bladder. And so you, you can imagine there's a certain kind of mindset. And that's what Akosia said is one of I have power. I am sexually, I have that power, whichever way you look at it. I have control, and therefore, I'm going to get what I want at all costs. So that, that was unfortunate. But I think sometimes, yes, we should make our comments. Yes, we should criticize. But in all that critique, we need to make sure that we are taking bits and pieces of the points that she also made and the good points that she made. But it incites a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of anger in people when you talk about rape. Nobody wants to go through that, in my opinion. The president of Ghana invited us all to reimagine what it meant to be a citizen. What does it mean to be a full citizen of a nation with all the protection of what that entails? For me, what the minister said was dangerous and deadly. Now, I, like every other Ghanaian woman, has been told by both my mother and my father to dress appropriately. So in other words, if you're going to an interview, don't wear what you would go to the beach for. All young people are instructed by their elders about what it means to dress appropriately. So the fact of issuing instructions about how to dress is not the issue. It's the connection between the length of a girl's skirt 
and the criminal behavior of boys and men who rape that is deadly and dangerous. So for me, it's not unfortunate. It is deadly and dangerous because of the particular power that this minister holds in terms of her ministry. Three areas, gender, children, and social protection. What does it mean to be somebody who is subject to the law? Because for me, what was dangerous about what she said is not just what it said about girls, but the message that it sends to boys and men. So we consistently say this in Ghana. You hear it all the time. Ghana is a nation that is subject to the rule of law. So does that include boys and men who rape? Because if it does, the reason why those comments are dangerous is because what then prevents a boy or a man from saying, well, how could I not rape her? Look at what she was wearing. And we hear that all the time. To be clear, none of us are immune from the societies that raise us and love us and to whom we have both responsibility and affection. But what she did falls within what is called rape culture. So in other words, globally, not just in Ghana, all over the world, there is a language that makes women's clothes, their behavior, their attitudes, the way in which they spoke, the way in which they approached somebody, did something or did not do something, it makes them responsible, particularly for sexual violence. It is deadly because you're talking about the futures of girls and women. What does it mean when someone gets raped? If we look at even the numbers in Ghana, in Brongahafo in 2015, in the first six months of the year, 280 girls between the ages of 10 and 14 were pregnant. The approach that we take to that story is we talk about teenage pregnancy, but those 10, 11 and 12 year olds are children. And if they are raped, what does that mean for their future? So we fail, I think, sometimes to recognize the cancer of the act itself, but the legacy that it leaves for those who are victimized by it and a society that does not see it as the devastating crime that it actually is and doesn't punish appropriately. So I think critique is often harsh. And for me, the minister doubling down her comments, an explanation was not what was required. What was required was to look at the strength of the critique and be able to recognize what within it is problematic and to go forward from there. Because for any woman, what if it's you? Because the reality is women are judged irrespective of what they put on their bodies. You can walk into an office with a suit and you'll be judged for all kinds of reasons. So the work is to extract the judgment from women's bodies and to start to teach men and boys, that they too must respect girls and women as citizens of this country, that they must respect those girls and women, they must respect their bodies, and that if they choose to commit the crime of sexual assault and rape, they will face the full force of the law. That is what I would expect to hear from a minister of gender. And that would have been a note of caution, which is very, very different than what she did. It was deeply problematic and it continues to punish girls and women in our society who are already victimized by the ways in which society deals with that particular issue. I want to have closing comments from you both, starting with Dr. Ander. When you think about the future and where women and girls are going, what leaves you hope? What makes you hopeful? I've had the opportunity to talk to young girls probably between the ages of 16 and I would say 25 over the last couple of years and maybe even before that, several of them. And what gives me hope is that our outlook to who we were 
who we are in those days, I always say that it's the same story, but a different era. And that is what the story of our lives is, is about. In those days, we didn't have as much hope. We just thought women were relegated to the background and this is where we were going to stay. But the young ladies of today are very assertive. They are very clued in. They are going out there. They are speaking up. I mean, we still have quite a long way to go, but they're speaking up. And uh, Nana Kushia is from a different generation, and there's absolutely no doubt that if we have quite a few of the Nana Kushias around, that gives you hope that they're going to empower their generation and the generations to come. We are doing that as well because we have some good stories to tell, and we are telling them where we've been and where we are today and how we got to where we are today. So a combination of our era and their era and even our mother's era gives me hope that things are are moving, albeit slowly, but things are are moving on. And I have quite a lot of hope that things are going to get better where women are concerned and where the power and empowerment is concerned and where our health is concerned. Because an empowered woman is a healthy woman, is an intelligent woman, is somebody who can contribute to discussions, is somebody who can go to the boardroom, and somebody who can be at the helm of affairs. So I have some really you know, good hope that things are going to work out. Closing thought to you, Nana Kosia Hansen. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Anda, for your very, very kind comments. There's something you did, there's something a woman of your generation did right. That's why women like me today are are disempowered and and it's thank you for that. To close, this this is a Facebook post about the Tiko issue from a, a Ghanaian man on Facebook today. He said she would say the Tiko is wrong, should just wear those indecent attire and come by my house and I'll do justice to your mind of their words. This is how some men are publicly now are actually showing what they really felt all this while. So I feel like the hope I have is that this has made the conversation public before it was hidden. We don't want to talk about it. It's not of importance. But now it's, there's been a whole lot of outrage, which has made me happy. Last year, there was an issue about GIJ seeking to ban mini skirts, and the outrage wasn't as big as it was this year, meaning between then and now, there's been some serious work that has been done. And for this, I'd like to pay homage to Ghanaian feminists who, despite the hostile environment and systems of oppression, they still fight. The Ghanaian Twitter feminists, they call them Twitter feminists to, as a derogatory term, but I feel like they are doing the most work because they are mass educating, in a sense. There are a lot of these people you can't sit face-to-face and actually have a conversation about women's rights. So through Twitter is how they let you know that, listen to me, this is why I'm also important. So this is why I have hope. Last month, Two 13-year-old girls came to me and said they wanted to meet Amata Aidu because they want to become feminists, they want to be African feminists, and they want to hear from her how to support women's rights and, and empowerment. And, I mean, once you hear that, you know there's hope for the future. You know, there's serious hope, and that's what makes me really happy. What the minister was saying to girls is, it is all about that thing they do. Lauren Hill knows... Except the fact is, 
Although Ghanaian girls and women may indeed have 99 problems victim-blaming, the length of their skirt should not be one. If you're having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cash is closed. Rap critics saves money cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid. What type of facts are those? Indeed, Jay-Z said, what types of facts are those? What type of fact? makes girls responsible for the criminal behavior of boys and men who rape. Such is the state of our nation. Yeah. This is my state of the nation address It's no hating, I'm just stating the facts Updating the masses on the situation that we facing I guess we can accept it's complicated at best In these hard times of elevated prices Energy crisis, load shedding plan Got your destiny decided It's only right no matter how facetious it sounds We learn the truth beyond reasonable doubt Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to state for the record I am a citizen, unwilling witness of the condition in which we're living in A living testament of civilians who are in a critic of the system for what it is and should have been. So that's your hour. Thank you to Nana Akosia Hansen and Dr. Ama Buheni Anda. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Brethren, don't cut me off when I'm gone. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This was Ghana Women power celebrating 60 years of independence on the spin your hour of talk where smart is also and always global groundbreaking and sexy i'm your host your global Ghanaian. Esther Ama. Policy, universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically, future yeah. freedom, equality. Yeah. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Ah. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls controlling, robbery, cold, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, that's follow me. Honestly, honesty, honesty, all these jokers, economy. Puppets with no autonomy, yup, it's food, you find me. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. easy. You know? Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy, take it easy. You're good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't lassie. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture clef, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, the ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell you
This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.